hope that you'll turn with me in a Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. In just a moment, we will be looking at Genesis 48, verses 1 to 22. So hold your place there if you've already turned to Genesis 48. But we start with Hebrews 11, looking at the next hero of the faith, the next example worthy of commendation and worthy of our emulation as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the background story that the writer to the Hebrews summarizes in one verse. So this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. There we read, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Jacob, the patriarch Jacob. Now, when many of us think of Jacob, I'm guessing this is not what we think of, this particular incident of blessing Joseph's sons. After all, Jacob lived one of the most adventurous and dynamic roller coaster lives recorded in Scripture. All kinds of adventures, all kinds of memorable and striking incidents. After all, this is the man who saw a staircase to heaven. He saw angels of God descending and ascending. He met God in that place. He received promises from God there. This is the same man who wrestled with the angel of the Lord and who survived and who then was given the name Israel, meaning the one who struggles with God. And yet that's not the incident that the writer of the Hebrews chooses to record here. He chooses to record an incident that many of us would probably pass over, probably would forget. Why? In this section of Hebrews 11, the writer is highlighting individuals who demonstrate faith when they come to the end of their lives. And in the case of Jacob, we see that the faith we hold dear, the faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a faith that must be passed on to others. It must be shared if it is real. And that's what we see Jacob doing here. He's handing on the faith to the next generation, so that the next generation would know who God is and what God has done. And this is a quality of faith that we need to test ourselves against today. We may think of having faith as holding the right opinions. Well, you can hold all the right opinions and still not have faith. We may think of having faith as 
winning the culture wars that are raging around us. Well, even if you win the culture wars and dominate the opposition, you can still not have faith. We may think of faith as living an upstanding moral life. We don't do this or that. We're not as bad as this person. You can live an upstanding moral life by the world's standards and still not have faith. We may think of faith as being a religious person. When the church is open, we're there. Bible study, we're there. Prayer meeting, we're there. Mission trip, we're there. You can do all those things and still not have faith. And what the story of Jacob in this incident is pressing upon us this morning is that those who have shared in the gift of faith will share their faith and they will be faithful to do so. Faithful to share their faith. If you are a partaker in this faith, if saving faith has been given to you, if you have received what Jesus has done for you, if you are resting in the work of Jesus for you when you have to stand before a righteous and holy judge at the end of your life, well then you're going to be faithful in sharing that. Boldly. Regularly. At every opportunity you have with your children, with your grandchildren, with people in the church, people outside the church, anyone and everywhere, is that quality present in your life right now? When was the last time you shared this faith with someone? Ever? Test yourself against this as we turn to Genesis 48. Genesis 48, looking at verses 1 to 22. There's a lot of background here that I'm going to outline as quickly as I can to show how we get to this point where Jacob is prepared to bless the sons of Joseph. When we left Jacob last week, He had deceived his father, Isaac. He pretended to be the elder son, Esau, all by the prompting uh, prompting of his mother, Rebekah. Rebekah, after all, favored him, and she wanted her favorite son to receive the blessing from Isaac. And Jacob went right along, played along. He even uses God's name to pull off this deception. His father, Isaac, can't see. And so he hears the voice. It sounds like Jacob's voice. And he asks, son, how did you find this, this meat so quickly? How did, how did you hunt so quickly? What does Jacob say? Oh, God gave me success. When after all, his mother had just said, go get a goat and I'll prepare it for you. He's a liar. That's what you need to know. He's a trickster. And he'll even use God to achieve his ends. Well, after that, he's on the run for his life. He's a fugitive. And yet God shows up in that vision, showing him a staircase to heaven. 
and blesses him and makes these promises to him that this land is going to be yours. Believe it or not, you may be a fugitive now, but I'm with you. And wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. Well, from there he goes on and returns to the land of his mother and he meets the girl of his dreams, Rachel. And he's so in love with her that he tells Laban, her father, I will work for seven years to be able to marry your daughter. Laban says, sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Laban has a different plan in mind, and it turns out that he's even more of a trickster and a liar than Jacob is. And and Laban's thinking, no, no, no. Rachel is the younger daughter. First, the older daughter, Leah, should be married. And we don't know exactly how he pulls this off, but there's a wedding feast. Maybe Jacob is inebriated. Maybe he's not quite himself. But when he wakes up in the morning after the wedding, he's not with the right person. So when he calls out Laban, he says, what have you done? You've tricked me. And Laban says, no, you need to marry the older daughter. But Jacob doesn't give up. He says, okay, I'll work another seven years if you'll let me marry Rachel. Fourteen years. One might say he did his time for what he pulled off against Esau and his father Isaac. But that's not the end of it. He still has to go back home to claim the land that God had promised him. But then there's that problem of his brother. Esau. What about Esau? And he's scared to death. But God confronts him in the middle of the night, and this is where there's this famous scene of wrestling with God, and God gives him the name Israel because he's wrestled with God, and God promises him, I'm still your God. I'm still watching out for you. It's going to be okay. And there's this beautiful reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. A beautiful reconciliation. And Jacob has... 12 sons. He's multiplied just as God told him. Some of the sons come from Leah, some come from Rachel, some come from maidservants. It's not a pretty picture. There's nothing to emulate there, but he has 12 sons nevertheless. Until Rachel, the love of his life, dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. Then his Son Joseph, the one to whom he gave a special robe, is sold into slavery in Egypt. And Jacob thinks he's lost him forever. He thinks he's dead. He thinks he'll never see him again. Until there's a famine in the land. And as it happens, the whole family ends up having to move down to Egypt. Where, lo and behold, this is where Joseph is. He's alive and he's prospered. God has given him great authority in Egypt. Egypt, under Pharaoh. So this is where the family is when Jacob comes to the end of his life. And so we pick up our reading here, verses 1 to 4. Genesis 48, verses 1 to 4. Some time later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at 
Luz, in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Pausing there. As Jacob, also known as Israel, faces the end of his life, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about the promises that God made to him. And as we see here, he's thinking about the next generation. The next generation. And this tells us something vitally important about God's promises. God's promises must be passed down from one generation to the next. They must be handed on from generation to generation. Generation to generation. He's thinking, who's next? He's thinking, you're up. You're up. Joseph, bring the next generation. They're up to bat, so to speak. The succession of grace, the stream of mercy is going to flow to them. And I have promises from God that I want to hand on to them before I'm gone. And that means for you and for me today, we need to hear, you're up. Is there anyone who could say, he or she passed on the faith to me? Can they say that about you? I stand in this line of succession. I believe because someone shared the gospel with me. God used their testimony. God used their witness. God used their sharing of the faith to bring about faith in me by the work of the Holy Spirit. You're up. Who are you going to tell? If this is the last day you have on this earth, have you said what you need to say to the people who need to hear it? Have you told them what is most important to you? Have you told them about God's promises or not? What's stopping you? Now's the time. Tell them. That's exactly where Jacob goes. God appeared to me. He made a promise to me, a promise of a great nation, of this land far from here. We may be in Egypt now, but this is not the end of the story. There's more to come. I want them to know. Is there that urgency in you to pass this on, to hand it down? Remember, this doesn't happen automatically. This doesn't happen automatically. You believe, I believe, we are where we are because someone told us about Jesus. You realize that? We stand in this line of succession. There is an unbroken chain Hundreds of generations long that reaches to now. And you can be part of this unbroken chain. And the same promises that God made to Jacob apply to you now, apply to his people in every age. Have you claimed them? Are you sharing them? If you have shared in the faith, 
If you know the truth of these promises, then you will share it. You will. You cannot suppress it. You can't keep it down. You must share it. And remember this. A church that fails to hand on the faith to the next generation is a church that's going to die. While we can have confidence in the church, capital C, the church, capital C, is never going to die. Jesus promised that. The gates of hell itself cannot prevail against his church. But individual churches, lowercase c, oh yes, they die. They're dying all around us. And the churches that fail to invest in the next generation, the churches that fail to see beyond their own generation, the churches that fail to hand on the faith, will die. That's the nature of God's promises. They must be handed on. That's what Jacob is intent to do. And trust me, we have way better promises. We have the fulfillment of the promises. Way better promises than what Jacob handed on to Ephraim and Manasseh. We have the promises of Jesus Christ so that it's not a geographic land that we're inheriting. We have the promise of eternity, of heaven, purchased by the blood of Jesus shed in your place. The promise of forgiveness. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done or haven't done, you can receive this. You can receive this. And the promise is that if you put your trust in Christ, you're forgiven, you're saved. You're justified before God. You have right standing before God. You have peace with God. Far better promises. How dare we withhold them? How dare we withhold them? Let's continue reading in verse 5. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. What's going on here? Jacob is legally adopting these sons of Joseph. He's saying that their inheritance is going to be just like my sons, Reuben and Simeon and all the other sons. He names these because they're the eldest. And while they're my grandchildren, I'm going to adopt them as mine. And all that I have is going to be theirs. They're going to share in it just like the rest. And why is he doing this? Partly it's a tribute to Rachel's memory. But he's also doing it with these sons because these sons are born in Egypt. They're the sons of Joseph. Think about what that means for a second. These are sons who stand to have probably an illustrious career 
in the administration of Pharaoh. Joseph is their dad. Joseph is second only to Pharaoh. And these are his sons. They stand to inherit a lot. But Jacob is giving an inheritance in his family, reminding them of the land where Rachel died, the land to which he knows they will return one day, to show them, don't be seduced into thinking, this is your home. Egypt is not your home. I have a more valuable inheritance for you. And it's back in the land that God has promised. Don't get comfortable here. Don't settle down here. No matter how illustrious it may look, no matter how much prestige it may have in the eyes of the world, don't get comfortable. This is not your permanent home. He's showing that God's promises are inherited by grace, not genealogy. Not genealogy. Yes, Joseph may be your dad. Yes, you may stand in line to inherit his position, his power. But by God's grace, I'm offering you a better inheritance. It may seem small now, it may seem remote from where you stand now, but it's real and it will last and it's from God. Therefore, it's the most valuable inheritance you could ever possibly have. God's promises are inherited by grace, not genealogy. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. We have right legal standing before God as our judge because of Christ. His righteousness, his righteous life, his atoning death, his resurrection, all those things are applied to us. They're imputed to us so that we have right standing before God, so that we are his adopted children. And we're given the spirit of adoption that, as Paul says in Romans 8, enables us to say, Abba, Father, to recognize God as not some transcendent being, but as our good and gracious King, as our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this may be one of the greatest dangers for people who grow up in church, for people who know the Bible and have heard the Bible their whole life. What can happen is that the faith turns into a family heirloom. It turns into a kind of cultural artifact that we pull out maybe at the holidays. You know, Easter's coming up, right? It's time to go to church. And, and we'll probably want to have an Easter meal, and so who's going to say grace? Who's going to pray? We should probably do that. It's Easter, right? Or they pull it out on special occasions, at Christmas, the high and holy days, because it's a cultural tradition. But the rest of the year... They darken the door of a church, sit in a pew. No, this is the danger because it, they're so familiar with it, and they know Grandma believed this, and Mom believes this, and so that's a part of their family heirloom tradition, and they cling to it that way. But it's not a living faith in them, and this is the great danger. This is the great danger. We cannot bank on our genealogy. We cannot bank on those who've gone before us. We need those who have gone before us, and we can be grateful for them, but we can't bank on that. Do you have faith? 
Never mind your parents. Never mind your grandparents. Do you have faith? Have you received the gift of faith? Have you been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you been declared God's son or daughter in the faith? Or not? In Matthew 3, John the Baptist speaks to those who were pride, taking pride in their genealogy. And he says, trust me, God can raise up children from these stones if that's what God chooses to do. Don't take pride in your biology and your genealogy and your spiritual heritage. That won't save you. It won't save you. Let's look at the blessing itself, picking up at verse 8. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They're the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and, and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. We're going to address the crisscross hands in just a second. For the moment, notice that God's promises are inherited by grace, not genealogy. But, but, genealogy can be a great privilege of grace. Genealogy can be a great privilege of grace. It's not for nothing that your mom and dad believed and handed on the faith to you. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful for those Sunday school teachers and those who invested in you so that you too might know the promises of God? A great privilege. And Jacob is sharing these privileges. Look at verse 15. May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked faithfully. He's pointing back to his own spiritual ancestry. Yes, it's also his genealogy, yes. But more importantly, it's his spiritual ancestry. My father and my grandfather walked with God. Could there be any greater legacy? No. These are men who were obedient, who heard God's call 
who followed God's call. These are men who enjoyed communion with God. They talked to God. They enjoyed fellowship with Him. And I had the blessed privilege of seeing that with my own eyes and hearing them talk to me about it and telling me about how good God is. But not only that, he has personal testimony of God's goodness. The same God with whom Abraham and Isaac walked is the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. And you think about when Jacob is remembering his life, all the twists and the turns, all the twists and the turns, some of them brought about by him, yes, his own failure, his own sin, some of it by those who have wronged him. He knows grief. He lost his wife in childbirth. He, he thought he'd lost Joseph, his son. He knows grief. And yet he can say, God has been my shepherd. He's guided me. He's provided for me. God has been good to me. Jacob, the liar, the trickster, the one who will invoke God's name for his own advantage, that same person is able to say, that may have been who I was by nature, but by God's grace, I know him as my shepherd. He showed up. He found me. He pursued me. I wasn't looking for him, but he found me. Can you bear witness to that today? Is God your shepherd? Has he been your shepherd all your life? And you look back, and yes, you've known grief. Yes, there is disappointment. Yes, there is failure. Yes, there is sin. But through it all, he's been there. And he's never let me down. There's nothing that he's promised me that he hasn't made good on. But preeminently, in verse 16, we have the angel who has delivered me from all harm. We have a redeemer. A redeemer. God is the shepherd who guides, who provides for, but he's also the one who sends his angel to protect. And for us, now on the other side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we have someone greater than an angel. We have the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us from all harm, from what threatens us the most sin and the just consequences of our sin. Hell, eternal death, separation from God. That's what Jacob deserved. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. And yet, we have the promise of the angel. Even more, we have the promise of a son, the Lord Jesus, who has delivered me from all harm. He saved me. Not because of anything I've said or done, but by His grace. I don't deserve this. But He did it. Oh, if you've shared in that, if you know the power of that reality, who are you going to tell? Maybe it's a son or daughter. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's a coworker. Someone needs to hear this. When was the last time you prayed for someone's salvation that you know? Remember this. Jesus tells us that with this great privilege, if you have heard the name of Jesus, if you were blessed with parents or a parent, grandparents who believed, 
To whom much is given, much is required. Hear these words from Luke 12, verse 47. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. There's a warning here. A severe warning here. For those of us who know about Jesus, who know the stories of the Bible, who have been in and out of church our whole lives. Oh, the privilege. The privilege. Do you see the privilege you've been given? Just being here today, hearing the gospel proclaimed, heralded forth, you're privileged. There are millions, millions who have never had that privilege. Oh, but what will we do with it? You're up. I'm up. What will we do with this? Will we go have lunch and forget about it? And go about our lives? Maybe come back on Easter Sunday? Or will we be changed by it? Gripped by it? I pray we would be gripped by it. That we would receive the gift. And then see this encouragement. Second half of verse 16. May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they increase greatly on earth. Lord, bless these boys. Bless these children. Is that your prayer today? For any young people in your life? Bless them, Lord. Please save them by your grace. May they never take the privilege of hearing your name proclaimed for granted. May they never take their spiritual inheritance for granted. May they never see it as just another cultural artifact or heirloom. May they see it as the one and only way to be made right with you, Lord. All because of the blood of Jesus. Well, Joseph isn't quite sure what to make of this at first. He doesn't like that his father has chosen to bless the younger and privilege the younger over the older. So we continue reading in verse 17. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother, will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you I give one more ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Joseph says, Father, you've got this backwards. Don't you know the, the older son comes first? And clearly he's not read Genesis because this is what God chooses to do over and over and over again, right? And it 
shows us that those who share in God's promises learn to be satisfied with their portion. Those who share in this saving faith learn to be satisfied with their portion. Joseph wants something different for his sons. Just as Rebecca wanted something different for Jacob. And he wants them to switch hands. No, 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 no. This shouldn't be this way. And in our imaginary way of thinking, we think that God should get a, give everybody the exact same portion. And God simply doesn't. Your life will look different than my life. My life may contain struggles that yours doesn't contain, and vice versa. And as Jacob looks back over his life, think of all the things he could have complained about, all the things he could have been angry about. Why did, the, why did my mom ever put that idea in my head to go cheat my brother and lie to my father? Why did Laban take advantage of me? Why did I have to wrestle with God? Why did my son Joseph get taken away from me? Why did my wife Rachel die in childbirth? Why has God allowed this or that? You see here, none of that, none of that is on his mind. He's not complaining about anything. He's satisfied with his lot, and he's challenging the next generation to be satisfied with their portion. God distributes his gifts as he pleases. Can you be satisfied with your portion, or you want to complain? Why do we have to live through COVID? Why do we have this crisis on our hands? Why does inflation have to be this way for us? Why did this tragedy happen in my life? We could complain all day long, couldn't we? We're really good at that. But when the gift of faith has been implanted in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you know that God is good, when you can testify that he has been your shepherd all your life, you say, what more do I deserve? I don't deserve anything. I deserve his judgment, and yet look how good he's been to me. He's given me his one and only son. He's poured out his grace. The stream of mercy flows right through me. And I pray it would flow through my family too. You're up. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? Are you going to receive it and be thankful and share it? Or are you going to look the other way? Let someone else do it. Sharing the faith is for professionals, right? The preacher can do that. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is the mark of every true believer. May it mark your life and my life. May we be faithful. May we say this is the faith of our fathers. Not just the fathers, our fathers in the faith, spiritually. This is my spiritual inheritance, and I'm grateful, and I'm never going to get over it. May that be you and me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you that through the gift of faith, we can see. Even if our eyes, our, our physical eyes, are growing weak as Jacob's were, Lord, we can see by faith. We can see your promises. We can see your goodness. We can taste of your goodness. And I pray for each and every person hearing this message that they would receive the gift. I pray, Lord, that they would be transformed by the power of your Spirit. I pray that on the other side of this, they would never be the same. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would bless these people, bless these children. May they come to know you in a saving way. May they enjoy the gift of faith, all by your grace and by the work of your spirit. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.